Did you know Bridgestone developed a tire using 75% recycled and renewable materials? Making a difference today for future generations. That's what really matters. Bridgestone, solutions for your journey. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more. Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta. Because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. Through 25 seasons, 4,561 episodes, I believe The Oprah Winfrey Show was one of the greatest classrooms in the world. I really never thought of it that way. The aha moments, the breakthroughs, the LOLs, the connections, the occasional ugly cry. I miss him so terribly. I miss him every single minute. The moments that mattered. The eye-opening life lessons. Never allow them to take you somewhere else. I'm bringing them back. It's time to open the vault. I've personally chosen these classic episodes to share with you again. Every single person you ever will meet shares that common desire. They want to know, do you see me? Do you hear me? Does what I say mean anything to you? You are listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. This is 16-year-old Daniel Kovar Basich. 24 hours ago, Daniel was sitting in a jail cell for stabbing to death a family friend who he says molested him. The judge in the case allowed Daniel to be here today for his first interview. And that decision has caused some controversy in Cleveland, where Daniel is from. But Judge James Burge says that he is allowing this interview today because, and I quote him, if we can prevent one more case of abuse and prevent another horrible death, it would be a public service announcement worth making. Thank you, Judge. Here is Daniel's story. January 22nd, 2010, started as a typical Friday at the Kovar Basic home. It started out normal, but looking back, I actually remember Daniel uh, sitting right there asking if he could just stay home. Terry drove his wife Donna to work, and on the way, they dropped off their 16-year-old son at the home of Dwayne Hurley, a family friend who is going to drive Daniel to school. But in less than one hour, this average day turned into a living nightmare. A half hour later, I get a frantic call from my son. He's freaking out. Daniel told his father to pick him up at Dwayne's. Now, something horrible had happened. Terry raced to meet his son. His hands were just caked with blood. I asked him, what happened? Daniel told his dad that Dwayne had attacked him. In a state of shock, Terry entered Dwayne's house to see for himself. At the very top of the steps, Dwayne was laying lifeless. My dad, he was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. It was a gruesome scene. Blood, splatters, and smears stained the walls. Dwayne Hurley was stabbed 55 times. In a panic, Terry and Daniel drove to Donna's workplace. I couldn't get Daniel to talk. Then finally, Daniel says, I killed a man. What? 
Daniel told his parents that Dwayne had attacked him and he was acting in self-defense. But that is not what happened. The real story begins more than three years earlier when Daniel was just 12. While no one knows what tomorrow may bring, Bridgestone is working toward a more positive outlook. With innovations like developing a tire using 75% recycled and renewable materials. It's just one of the many ways Bridgestone is making a difference today, for generations to come. Because that's what really matters. Bridgestone, solutions for your journey. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more. At Delta, we know Mike NHC prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. Right behind me is elementary school. My son was 12 years old. He was playing with a bunch of friends when Dwayne T. Hurley approached him with his dog. Daniel automatically loved the dog. Dwayne Hurley was a 52-year-old bachelor who lived about a mile from the Kovar Basich home. Next time I seen Dwayne was about a couple days later. He was like, hey, can you watch my dog for me? So I watch his dog. He comes back in like five minutes, and then he hands me like $30. Daniel's parents taught him to be suspicious of strangers, so he was a little skeptical at first. We got the information off the dog tag to go look him up online to see if he was a sex offender. My mom was like big on that. We didn't find anything, didn't see anything. So kind of made me think like, you know, all right, you know, this is a legit dude. One day he said, Danny, why don't you come by my house and you can work for me and you make some money. We told him that, well, okay, you can go over there, but we're gonna go meet this man first. Dwayne welcomed us into his home. He seemed very genuine and for almost a year, every time Daniel would go over there, my wife and I would go with him. Then. We let him in, so he was part of the family after that. About a year into the friendship, Daniel says, things began to change. At first, when he'd say stuff like, you know, hey, how many different ways can you say the word penis? Well, I'd be using a bathroom, he'd walk by, open the door, you know, and like, I mean, I'd catch him catching a glimpse of me, and then he'd pee with the door open, Daniel was now a teenager who was interested in girls and loved cars, but he wasn't old enough to drive legally. He had a Dodge Stratus, a Corvette, and a Prowler. And eventually, after, after a while, he started letting me drive the Stratus. One time, I was going to hang out with my friends. And then I'm like, let me get the keys. And he's like, well, pulls out his keys. He's like, I show me your penis first. And I was in a hurry, and I'm like, just give me your keys. And then he's like, no, you really got like, you really got to show me your penis. I'm like, whatever. Whipped out my Johnson. And then he wanted to touch my genitals after the touching and stuff. And then I, I wanted to drive the Corvette. He was like, bigger toys, bigger things. And that was his way of, you know, we got to bump this up. Well, it progressed to anal over a little after that. I don't want to do these things. After months of sexual abuse, Daniel says he couldn't take it anymore and told Dwayne to stop. I was thinking, you know, it's all right now. But the abuse continued. Two weeks before he killed Dwayne, Daniel fell asleep on his couch. He anally penetrated me that night. 
and I acted like I didn't know. I'm starting to be mad. I'm starting to hate. Daniel had been planning a romantic one-year anniversary celebration with his girlfriend. Dwayne saw an opportunity. He said, your anniversary's got to be paid for, right? If I felt sick, I felt a rush, it all just popped in my mind all at once. And somehow I understood everything at once. This stuff isn't going to stop. It's going to keep happening, keep happening. And then I snapped. So Daniel admits to hitting Dwayne Hurley in the head with a pickle jar and stabbing him 55 times. A judge found him guilty of voluntary manslaughter and aggravated assault. He was sentenced to five years probation. And since that verdict, the judge has ordered Daniel to stay in jail until the court finds him a therapy-based treatment facility. With the judge's permission, Daniel left the jail yesterday to drive here with his family and his probation officer for his first interview. Did you realize at the time you were being molested or had you thought by the time you snapped on January 22nd that it really was a sexual relationship you were having with him? Well, I didn't realize, you know, it was molestation, but I wouldn't put it as a sexual relationship because I look as a sexual relationship, you know, both people are, they're okay with it, which I wasn't. Mm -hmm. So I just said, you know, sexual relationship because... What sex was happening in the yes. relationship. Yes. And I think that's such a really great point you make for all kids who don't understand when it's happening to you that that is what is happening, that you now you can use the word groom because you realize that there was a process of getting you ready for the actual, you know, sexual act or molestation. I remember many years ago on this show, some of you watching now may remember... We did a show about how to protect your kids. And his tactic is a classic child molester's tactic. We did it with little kids in the park where a guy comes and says, can you help me find my puppy or can you take care of my puppy? For you, it wasn't a puppy. It was actually, uh, you know, a dog. Mm -hmm. And that's how, it, that's how the lure started for you. What is interesting about this is that your parents, you know, having been you know, made aware of the, the kind of world we live in, were cautious about that, went online and checked to see if he was a molester, and there was no record of him. No. What did he tell you that he, you know, what was his way of earning a living? He was a counselor or something like mm -hmm. that and worked with kids, but it, we found out later he wasn't. It was, it was all a lie. Yeah. It was a lie. So the grooming process, which I, for years, have been trying to, you know, tell the world about that if a sexual molester is any good at his job, his number one job is to make the child feel that they are a part of it so that they don't tell. Because once you tell, his game is up. Yeah. So the first time, you know, and everybody always wants to know this, mm -hmm. um, why did you keep going back? I felt like I had to. Like, I couldn't get away from him. I already knew that, you know, and I, I, it was like it was my fault. I was the one who showed him my genital, which started it, and he kept using that against me. Well, you know, what would your parents think? I just felt like I had to be there. I had to go there, and even if I didn't, you know, he'd come find me. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if I tell him no, I'm not going to come over, then, he'd, then he was going to say something. Yeah. You know, I've said this to years for parents. Once a child doesn't tell, if you don't tell the first time, 
then the guilt and shame of it. Oh, yeah. The next time, and the next time, and the next time. Then you feel like you can't tell, yeah. because now you're in it. And it builds. And it builds, and it builds. During Daniel's sentencing, the judge, who uh, happens to be a very enlightened person, apparently, read this quote from forensic psychiatrist Dr. Michael Wellner. And this quote says this. This is for every parent to understand. A skillful groomer, a skillful abuser, gets into the child's DNA and becomes a part of the child. And the child can't cast him off regardless of the age. I think that's pretty powerful, don't you? Yeah. yeah. So on the 22nd, you're in his house yeah. and you're having a conversation about the anniversary that you're going to have with your girlfriend coming up in two days. Right. And what happened? So after we we're done talking, he goes off in his room. He's like, well, why don't you come in? I'm thinking in my head, all right, you know, I know what's going to happen, you know. You know what's going to happen, meaning what? I know he, he means, I know he wants to have sex. I know that's what's coming. I'm on the computer sitting there, like, I, acting like I can't even hear him. He starts talking, and he's like, so, you know, all this stuff's going to cost about what? And I'm like, $80. So, you know, he's like, you know this stuff isn't free, right? And I look at him, and I see him looking at me, and then it, that's when I just... Snap. And what does snapping feel like? I, I don't know what that means. What I realize he's going to keep molesting me, and it's, it's not going to stop. There's nothing, obviously, I can do or say to stop him. And I just seen the pickle jar, and I just picked up and hit him with it, and then the rest took on. So did you, had you not thought about ever, like, telling somebody or what would happen if I told somebody or how I can get myself out of this other than ending his life. Had you not thought about that? Well, I, I thought about telling, but I, I couldn't. I didn't know how. I, I couldn't. The only one I could talk to was him. But I didn't think about ending his life or anything. I just... Yeah. So when you started stabbing, you stabbed him 55 times. Yeah. yeah. Did you realize that you had stabbed him that many times? No, I had no idea. And do you think that that was just... Uh, your rage or what, what, what happened in that moment? I, it, I think it was more rage. Like, and I wasn't there there. Like, I was doing it, but I was, like, somewhere else. And then I ended up realizing, like, I'm stabbing him. And then I stopped. And, but and what was he doing? Just laying there at the end. Mm -hmm. Do you have remorse? I do on some extent. I mean, I feel, I, I, I do know I killed a man. You know, and it's not right. I mean, I don't feel great for killing someone. I know that's wrong. I feel, I feel relieved, though, now. You can understand what I'm saying. I feel relieved mm -hmm. because everything's done, but I, I feel bad to an extent. So Daniel could have spent at least 15 years in prison if convicted of the original charge of murder. And as we said, instead, he got five years probation for a lesser charge of manslaughter. There are some people who feel that Daniel got away with murder and that the judge went too easy on him. Did you know Bridgestone developed a tire using 75% recycled and renewable materials? Making a difference today for future generations. That's what really matters. Bridgestone, solutions for your journey. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more. At Delta, we know Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. 
Daniel's parents, Donna and Terry, and his brother, Greg, are joining us now. So um, Donna and Terry, having now understood what was happening to your family, I think you see that you were also being groomed. Is that true? Um, yes, we were all being groomed. Um, uh, it's like he was an actor, and he created a stage. And uh, he had told us... New numerous lies, you know, that weren't true. He wasn't a social worker counselor. He was a janitor, and that's all he did. I think it's interesting that when your son first came home and was telling you about this right. man, the first thing you did was to go online to look right. up to see if he had a record of... Right, he didn't. Yes. Right, right. Yeah. We always have raised them to be cautious and leery of, you know, strangers and stuff, so... Mm. Um, and what did you learn from this whole process, Terry, that... You know, child molesters aren't strangers once they introduce themselves. Absolutely not. Now I see why. And that's the message for all of you parents. It's not a stranger anymore once you have befriended the child and befriended the parents. I'm sorry for interrupting. Go ahead. Oh, that's okay. Now I understand why police, when they're looking into stuff like this, they look great at family members and friends because this was a friend, period. Mm -hmm. He was part of the family. Come in and out of my house anytime he wanted. So all along, he was abusing my son. I didn't even know it. Mm -hmm. And why weren't you willing to tell? Because you were so ashamed of it? Ashamed, embarrassed. I mean, I didn't want to tell. Didn't know how just to, you know, this was happening. Mm -hmm. All right, so Terry, you had said to us earlier on the tape that at first you all were very cautious and would go to the house with him. And so what happened? And, you know, I know part of the reason you're sharing your story is so other parents can understand for themselves. What happened that he was able to win your confidence? Well, when we first met him, he acted calm, just like any one of you. Like, we'd come up and meet each other. I mean, he was just well, that like is anybody. What, like that, is, anybody. That, that is the point I'm trying to make and have been trying to make for 25 years here, is that the boogeyman doesn't wear boogeyman clothes and that the boogeyman is the guy next door and is somebody's father, somebody's son, somebody's uncle. Because if, if he were acting suspicious or acting weirdly or strangely, the then... The game wouldn't work. That's right. Their game. Then, then the game doesn't work. Doesn't the boogeyman work. is just like you and I. Yeah. So bottom line is you all trusted this guy. If my son ended up missing, if this went the other way and my son ended up missing, my wife and I would be standing right with him looking for our son and would never know that he did anything. That's how much we trusted him. Yeah. And so, Greg, you're his older brother. Had you any suspicions about your change in behavior with your brother? Yeah, I started noticing some, like, in his eyes. He just started changing. He started acting up in school. Just total change. Started smoking. Never did that before. Mm -hmm. Hates as much as me. And then he started smoking. Just everything. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that you let your son down? Sure we do. Absolutely. I should have saw. We all do. I should have saw from a mile away, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. And now we're here. Mm -hmm. So when you first heard that your son had been abused and that that was the reason that he uh, stabbed him all those times, what did you think? I was pretty shocked. I was kind of angry that he didn't come to me. And we've taught him ever since they were young, you know, you got to tell. Mm -hmm. We've taught him about these things. And I was shocked mm -hmm. that somebody could get past my radar like that. 
So you were angry that he hadn't told you? I was angry that he hadn't told me. I was angry that this person deceived my whole family and he literally just took our innocence away like that. Mm -hmm. And that makes me angry. Mm -hmm. And you were also? I was, I was very upset. I was confused because I never seen any signs that Daniel was being abused. And Mr. Hurley, he, in my head, he was such a nice person, you know? He knew what he was doing. So um, that was pretty much what shocked me the most. So now you know what the signs are. And, you know, I know part of the reason why, obviously, the judge wanted you to be here is to try to save another child, right. obviously. Many people are watching who are right now going through the same thing that you have been through and are also feeling the rage and the hatred of themselves and the shame and the guilt because they didn't tell the first time and now feel that they're in it and can't tell anybody. Mm -hmm. What do you want to say to those kids? I like to say, you know, you need to come out and you need to say something because it's not your fault. No one's going to blame you. So say what you need to. You know, man up. I mean, that's, you ended up man in. Man up. Do you wish you had done that? Yes. You wish you had done that? Yes. Yeah. And when you're being groomed, the, the whole point of being groomed is you don't know you're being groomed, you know? And would you say that when you were in the process of, of being groomed, being able to have money or being able to drive his car or being able to do whatever, you thought, okay, I can show my genitals for that. I'm willing to do that. And then it got out of hand. It progressed too far. So I know one of the things you want to say to kids is that it gets worse. It doesn't get better. Yeah, it's going to get worse. Terry, you wanted to say what? I wanted to say to the kids out there, listen, when anybody is giving you stuff that your parents don't want you to have, it's, and you think it's cool that, hey, this person's cool. He's giving me alcohol. He's let me ride his car. Hey, he's the cool guy. My parents suck. Uh, that's what they feel. Listen, something's wrong. Well, you should all know that police recovered about 1,500 pornographic images from Dwayne's computer, some of them photos of young boys. The Lorain County Prosecutor's Office is appealing Daniel's sentence. and We asked them for a statement, but they did not return our calls. So thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Terry and Donna and Greg. Thank you for being here. It was one of the most unforgettable news stories of the 90s. Ellie Nessler, the justice-seeking mom who gunned down her son's molester. Here's a look back. Willie Nessler was just six years old when he said he had been molested by Daniel Driver, a dishwasher at this California church camp. Four other boys made similar claims. Turned out, Daniel Driver had been convicted of sexually abusing young boys years earlier. But for those crimes, the judge had only given him probation. When Driver was tried for Willie's case, Willie's mom was terrified that the system would fail again and that Driver would get off scot-free. That's when Ellie Nessler says she snapped. On April 2nd, 1993, in a packed courtroom, Ellie took the law into her own hands and shot Daniel Driver five times in the head. Ellie was convicted of voluntary manslaughter and sentenced to 10 years behind bars. 
1995, she spoke to us from prison. Her children, Willie and Rebecca, were here with me. Ellie, do you ever regret doing it? Yeah, I have regrets. I am sorry that I killed someone and that I'm not with my children. But on the other hand, I wish the judicial system would have taken care of it. I wish I wouldn't have had to, let's put it that way. And did you do it because you thought the judicial system would not? Uh, yes, there were uh, four other little boys besides my son that was testifying. The questions they were asking was, how many times did he sodomize you and did you like it? Well, who cares? The boys were six years old. They were, you know, raping our children to get on the stand. And my boy was too sick. He was vomiting. I says, um, you know, Willie, you have to do it. And he was vomiting, and he says, Mom, I can't. Why did you feel you couldn't? It just... I was, because I was scared, and when I was six, he threw my life, and I thought that he was going to hurt me again when I went in there. So Ellie was released from prison in 1997. Two years later, we talked with Ellie about how killing her son's molester had deeply impacted her children. After four years in prison, we're finally just really beginning to have the family life that most people have. This is good stuff. My son has a hard time and has spent almost his time locked away in boot camps as I have in prison. And he needed help and he needed support, but they didn't know how to deal with it. But I hurt my boy and I can just tell anyone that even thinks about doing what I I did. Don't do it. I regret the pain I have caused my children. In hindsight, I wouldn't have done it. Ellie Nessler was free, but her troubles with the law were far from over. Three years later, in 2002, she was sentenced to six years in prison after pleading guilty to selling and possessing meth. While Ellie was serving that term in prison, Willie's life spiraled even more out of control. In 2004, at age 23, in an act of rage, Willie stomped a man to death. He is now serving 28 years to life for murder in the first degree. Freed in June 2006, Ellie was unable to visit Willie in prison because she was in the final stages of a long battle with breast cancer. She died on December 26, 2008. She was 56 years old. Rebecca, Ellie's 23-year-old daughter, buried her mother. Willie was not allowed to leave prison for the funeral. Rebecca is now 25 years old, and she's here. Welcome back. Thank you, Oprah. What a tragic story. When you look at this story, nobody won in this story. Nobody. No. Your mother didn't. Your brother didn't. You didn't. You all suffered because your mom in an act of rage in the courtroom, uh, didn't want to see that molester go free again. And any mother or father watching can understand what that, that rage feels like. But at the time that it happened, you were, what, nine? Yeah, I was eight when she went to prison. And what was that like for you and your brother? Who then took care of you? With me, my grandma took care of me, but she was a little older. She wasn't able to take care of both me and my brother. So my brother was supposed to go live with my aunt, but you know, he was really lost at that time. Mm -hmm. So he actually ended up running away from home and got in trouble for that. No one stepped up to help him in his life. Because the how long had he been molested? He had been molested for one year, mm -hmm. and then Daniel Driver continued to stalk us for four years. 
continuously trying to kidnap Willie from home, from school. And that's, you know, it wasn't just that one year. He tormented my brother another continuous four years. Mm -hmm. So your mom just felt frustrated and like the law was not going to do anything and that this was going to be, this was just going to continue and there was nothing that could be done about it. Correct. Yeah. Because he had been let off before. It, it all depends on the judge. Right. It all depends on the judge. Do you think that your brother would be in prison today if your mom had not shot his molester? I definitely do not think Willie would be in prison today. He was, you know, he was... He even stated he was over the molestation. He was okay. What hurt all of us was mom being torn away from us and then Willie and me being separated. Mm -hmm. Us no longer having each other. Not just, we, did we not have a parent? We didn't have each other. Mm -hmm. And how has this impacted your, your life? And then your mom comes out of prison and then she sells meth and then she goes back into prison and then she gets cancer. It's, it's a very tragic story. Yeah. And um, my life has actually been okay. You know, I always had support. I always had people backing me. Mm -hmm. You know, I live a normal life, you know, married, children, mm -hmm. but it's really hard doing, like, had my wedding, my brother wasn't able to walk me down the aisle. You know, at my graduation, my mom wasn't able to be there. Mm -hmm. What was your mother's reaction at the time to your, your brother's conviction? She knew it was gonna happen because the justice system kind of failed him and didn't step up. He had already made a name for himself when he was a juvenile. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a juvenile delinquent. Yeah. Getting into trouble all the time. Because oftentimes, if, you know, kids don't lash out at the molester. But if you don't lash out at the molester, you don't lash out at somebody. You internalize it for yourself. And that's what your brother was doing. Right. You think. For most of your life, your mom and your brother have been in prison. And that's been like what for you? It's been really hard to move on and know that I have a normal life. And that, like, I'll catch myself laughing with family and I'll sit back and I'll be like, you know, they should be here with me in this moment. Mm -hmm. They should be able to laugh like this. Well, NBC chief uh, legal analyst Dan Abrams has covered this story over the years, most recently for the Today Show. So we asked Dan if he would go on assignment for us uh, to interview Ellie's son, at the High Desert State Prison in California. Uh, Rebecca went with him, and it was her first time seeing her brother Willie in two years. How are you feeling? I'm feeling anxious and nervous and happy. Why happy? Because I get to see Willie for the first time in a while. What are the first things you want to talk to Willie about when we see him today? I'm probably the first thing that we talk to each other about is going to be mom, most likely mom. Because you haven't seen him since she died. Right. And because it's, she's like definitely the biggest influence in our life and she's our mom, you know, and we don't have her anymore. We have each other. Do you ever get nervous seeing him behind bars? Yeah, today I'm nervous. Um, Why? Mainly because I know it's a hello, but I know just after a short few hours, it's also a goodbye. And the goodbye is already what I fear. Me and Willie are now, I consider him my best friend now. Mom was my best friend for a long time, but Willie's definitely stepped up to that role. He's the person, he's my confidant. We're here at the gates to the prison. Are you feeling ready? I'm ready, I'm anxious, I'm happy. I'm 
ready to go in and see him. So we just spent two and a half hours with Willie. First time you've seen him in two years. How was it? It was really emotional. I was struck by how much he talked about family. I mean, he talked about your mother, and the minute he started talking about your mother, you could see tears welling up in his eyes. Family's always been so important to all of us, to me, to my mom and Willie, all three of us. And you hear him when he's talking about everything that's happened when she was taken to prison. It really seemed like that was the, the turning point in his life. That was a huge turning point. That's when like his world kind of stopped and he was at crossroads and didn't know what to do. He was lost. He was a little boy that was lost and alone. It was right before we came back. Yeah. So, Dan, what was your impression of how Willie is now? Well, you know, very often when I'll interview someone in prison, they'll either blame other people or they'll be angry or they'll talk about their innocence, et cetera. Uh, Willie didn't do any of that. He was really introspective and thoughtful about his whole life and about sort of the path that had led him there. And, and that really struck me because there was no sense of this person's to blame or the system's to blame or I shouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. It was really a sort of bird's eye view of how he'd gotten there and why he was there. And I, and I was really impressed with that ability. What did he say? He said that the molestation started him on this path, mm -hmm. no question. Mm -hmm. He said, it's a scar that you have with you for life and nothing is gonna fix that. Mm -hmm. But he wanted to make it really clear that he felt that he'd gotten over it. That by the time he was 12, he had really pretty girlfriends, he was really popular, he said that again and again. And the, the thing that really changed his life, it sounds like, wasn't necessarily just the molestation. Mm -hmm. It was losing his mother. It was losing his mother. And losing his sister. I mean, watching these two together is striking. You see, we walked, in, we walked in there, and the first thing you see is Rebecca turning around again and again, waiting to see when Willie's gonna get there. He walks in, and they start talking to each other as if they had just seen each other yesterday. They hadn't seen each other in two years, but they followed up on letters that they'd sent each other. Mm -hmm. And they started talking as if the end of the letter was the beginning of the conversation mm -hmm. that they were about to have. And it's really striking. And, and when you talk to Willie, that's really clear, that it's about family to him. Yeah, do you think we progressed in this country since 15 years ago when this mother, who felt that she could get no justice, this child molester who had been let off by a judge and from her point of view, uh, she felt was going to be, you know, set free or allowed to not only continue molesting her child, but the four other little boys who were in that courtroom. Have we progressed? I think we've made some progress. We've made it tougher on child molesters, meaning they have to register now. There are certain things that didn't exist before. Does that mean that this problem wouldn't have happened today? Right. No. No. Um, but it does mean that progress has been made. Did you sense that he was still ashamed of the molestation? Because you mentioned that he said to you several times, you know, I had pretty girlfriends. Yeah. So that the molestation still carries that shame. Very much so. Uh, I, he didn't want to talk about the molestation. He talked about the fact that he really hated it when people would point him out and say, hey, that's the kid who was molested. Mm -hmm. His point was that he'd kind of moved on. He'd moved past it mm -hmm. and that once his mother became this national figure mm -hmm. and his life was on display for the world, mm -hmm. I think that was the hardest part mm -hmm. for him. How long will he be in prison? 
I think it's likely he's going to be there until 2031, when he'd be eligible for parole. Um, the family is going to, I think, continue to, to fight through the legal avenues. But uh, I think that'll be his first opportunity for parole. And he seemed very um, um, ready to do well in prison. Mm -hmm. I believe what my mom did did save other boys from being molested. She stated to me once, I might have saved their lives, but I couldn't save my own child's life. The tears, like, are just wishing Willie was here with me. Because, like, these aren't just my memories, you know, they're his memories also. And he was always such a good big brother, like, he always took care of me. Mom used to not be able to brush my hair before school because it was so tangled, so he would come brush it for me. He has a really big heart. Willie's most recent letter was really emotional. My favorite line that he put is, I will always keep you in my heart as armor, and when I want to have strength, I think of us as children. I remember you when you were born. I remember you as a little girl. I see you in the pictures as a woman, and I think you are a lot like mom. That makes me happy that he thinks I'm like mom because she was the biggest inspirational person in his life. You know, she's a single mom. She raised us both as well as she could and gave her life for ours. So I heard that being with your brother was the first time you recall him actually talking about the molestation, really? Right. Um, not just about the molestation, but about everything. Shooting, about your mother's death. About us being separated. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously it hurts him, and I know that. But him saying it, like, it validated it, you know? That that was a turning point, and that is kind of what tore him up and led him on the wrong path, was all of us being separated mm -hmm. and how much he missed me during that time. So if he's watching right now, what do you want to say to him? He knows I love him, but I want to say I love him, and it's hard to do it without him, you know? It's just hard to live a normal life without him right here by me. And does he, I hear he has a nine-year-old son. He does have a nine-year-old son. And who's taking care of him? Um, his mother. He lives in Texas with his mom. Wish you the best. Thank you. Well, thank you both. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Oprah Show, the podcast. And I thank you for listening. While no one knows what tomorrow may bring, Bridgestone is working toward a more positive outlook. With innovations like developing a tire using 75% recycled and renewable materials. It's just one of the many ways Bridgestone is making a difference today, for generations to come. Because that's what really matters. Bridgestone, solutions for your journey. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more. At Delta, we know Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing.